0: .NET Rocks. And we're recording the second show in a series of we don't know how many from the .NET user group of Greater Boston on September 11th,
1: 2002.
0: So I'm here with Mark Dunn. Mark. Hey, Carl. Good to be here tonight. All right. And we have a crowd of roughly about, oh, I don't know, 100 people or so. <laughs> and it's going. And it's going. They're leaving fast. <laughs> We're going to chase them out. Uh, the .NET user group of Greater Boston is hosted by Chris Pels. He is the Prez. Is that your title, Chris? The Prez? Yeah, that's it. The Prez. You have a, you have a jacket with Gov on the back or Prez or something like that. And um, it's this, only the second show. And the first show I did without you, actually. And I was tied up, so this should prove to be an interesting show, mostly because with us on the phone is none other than uh, the guru of gurus for VB programmers, the hero of the VB community, Mr. Dan Appleman.
2: You are way too cold.
0: So uh, Dan, what's, it, what's, uh, what's happening out there in California as we speak?
2: Well, it's, uh, it's a beautiful day. We're having a heat wave here. So, uh, we're all staying inside in air-conditioned houses.
0: Oh, that's always good.
2: And, um, that's about it. It's just, uh, it's just another work day, uh, with, with pauses to watch CNN and remember. That's pretty much it. Yeah, it's been quite a day.
1: We, uh, Mark actually, Mark, you actually flew up here today, didn't you? That's right. I, uh, maybe on television in Raleigh, I was interviewed this morning by a news crew there uh, that asked me how I felt about flying on, uh, September 11th, what kind of, uh, was it a big plane or a small plane? Or uh, no, I flew on a Canada Air Jet, so it was a small plane. How many
0: people are on board?
1: Uh, around ten. Uh, not, a of, <laughs> not a lot of air traffic
0: today. So. You can pick your seat. <laughs> so, uh, what did you notice anything different in your neighborhood, Dan? Um,
2: no, not really. Uh, it's uh, you know, I, I think part of the attitude is that uh, that you know, light is supposed to go on, so you know, you pause to remember, but you don't want to overdo it because, uh, sort of, if you if you spend too much time suspending your life, the bad guys win. It, yeah, totally I think the attitude.
0: Mm-hmm. I totally agree. So, about Dan, yeah. what do you think? Five what do I think? Or less. <laughs> 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 I'm putting you on the spot here. Maybe I can uh, paraphrase that. You've written uh, how many books on .net now? Uh, one book
2: plus another 3 ebooks. That's Tell good. me about your book. Well, the, uh, the first book I wrote was, uh, was Moving to VB.NET Strategies, Concepts, and Code. And, and that one is designed specifically for VB6 programmers, uh, who are going to .NET. So the idea was avoid reteaching the things VB6 programmers know or the things that they can learn very easily and focus on the, the concepts and information that is really important for them. So, uh, and that book did very well. And, um uh, I started experimenting with ebooks because if you think about what's available for, for information, for books in general, you really find only two lengths. You find uh, article length and you find books. And it turns out that there are a lot of topics for which what you really want is 50 or 60 pages, something that, that lets you go into depth in specific areas. But 50 or 60 pages is, it's too long for a magazine. The magazines won't buy those. Uh, since they're longer than most magazines and they're way too short for a book so uh, I, I found that ebooks are a really good solution for that and uh, hopefully the idea will catch on and more people will, will go and, and want to read in that format
0: have you had a lot of downloads
2: yeah the, the .NET or c sharp ebooks been really very successful for an ebook of course they, none of them sell as, as well as a book does um, and it's gotten a lot of response and uh, and and I'm actually pleased to say that uh, people have disagreed with me on on my conclusions, but very rarely on the facts. So uh, it looks like I did a pretty accurate job.
0: Well, as you always do. Well, thank you.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the book on regular expressions uh, has been doing well, especially as uh, VB programmers especially begin to realize what regular expressions are and how they can save them a ton of time.
0: When I first saw a regular expression, I thought it was an
2: encryption. It looks like it, doesn't it?
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, the obfuscating ebook uh that was actually interesting because uh, I got very, the, the strongest response I got out of that one was from Microsoft, where you have two different groups. One group saying, you know, darn it, Dan, you're absolutely right. You need to spread the word that people should be using obfuscators. And the other group saying, Dan, you're absolutely right, but we really don't want you to be, to be talking about it. <laughs>
0: Now that that strategy's
2: never worked. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, but it, but it was a lot of fun uh, dealing with that.
0: I, I love to see the lights, the, the eyes light up when I show people dasm in my glasses and uh, you know the gasps of horror that you know the realization comes over them that, that their their code is uh, out there.
2: It, uh, it it's so easy to disassemble and decompile .net. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um. So you know this obfuscator. It's a simple one, but it, it is. Exceptionally vicious in terms of the level of obfuscation it does.
0: Now, which obfuscator are you talking about?
2: The one I wrote. Uh. The the <laughs> ebook comes with a free downloadable obfuscator that includes full source code. It is uh, actually uh, a great example of of two types of. Oh, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Your obfuscator <laughs>
0: has full source code.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes,
2: absolutely. So. Can you uh, explain it's, that one? Well, it, it, it actually demonstrates two really interesting parts of .NET. Okay. One part is reflection. It shows you really how to go into an assembly and look at all the methods and, and properties and and find out things about them uh, because that's how it decides what it can and cannot obfuscate. The other thing it does is a part of it's written in Manage C++ because mm-hmm. I actually use. I know this is going to sound strange, but I use the com interfaces into the .NET runtime. Oh. Uh, those are things that are usually used by compiler authors uh, to build, to actually build .NET assemblies. Well, it turns out you can use them to uh, really get into the, the lowest level of reading the metadata in a, in a uh, executable file. So if you want to really see what it means to, to read a uh, a .NET assembly, DLL, from disk, and literally parse it out and see what's going on in there. That That's an amazing code. Wow. So I guess
0: the reason we got a chuckle here is because did you protect the sensitive parts of the obfuscator that actually does the obfuscating, or was this more like um, a learning exercise to show people, hey, here's what an obfuscator does, and here's why it's important, etc.?
2: It's actually even worse than that, at least from Microsoft's point of view. It's open source. Oh, okay. So I actually... <laughs> So I, I we don't actually, want to be
1: using this in production, is what we're
2: saying? No, it, it basically means that you can use it in production. You can. It's, it's released under the uh, Mozilla license, huh. which means that you can actually uh, use it, you can modify it, you can incorporate it into your own product. It's a very, very open source type license. So what's preventing all those open source
0: people from deobfuscating my obfuscated code with your source code?
2: Well, the, the trick of an obfuscator is it actually throws out information. Huh. And once information is thrown out, it's gone. So
0: even a deobfuscator, quote unquote, wouldn't be able to reconstitute that code.
2: Some of it. Uh, anything, you know, obfuscators come from the word obfuscating, which means sort of to hide, right? right? So some of the,
0: It's Latin for screw it all up.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably more accurate than. <laughs> but so, so the, the question, the answer is, Yes, the things that it throws out like variable names and, and method names or so on, they're gone. Uh, mm. What makes this obfuscator rather vicious is that if you use ILDasm on it and get the disassembled code and you, act, and you try to reassemble it, it will actually fail to reassemble mm. uh, wow. because of the way it mangles the names.
0: That's cool.
2: So, But could you write a decompiler deobfuscator that will get you something that you can compile? Yes, it's possible to do that but it still can't recover the actual information that you've thrown away.
0: Well, it sounds like this is a really good thing to check out if you're interested in the whole topic of obfuscation and how they work and so you can measure for yourself what's going you know, to work and what isn't.
2: Well, this is, this is $39 under the an food source and We're the deal. e-book. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, um, Dan, it sounds like somebody has a question for you from the audience. So, sir, why don't you just come on up to the microphone. I just, I just want to know his website. Oh, what's your website, Dan?
2: <laughs> www.desaware.com Very good. So, and you've
0: yeah. been, now, for those of you who don't really know your history, you've been around since uh, the VB1O
2: days. It, it is actually a point of, of surprise and, and shock in a way that if you actually look at the original component vendors back from the VB1 days, as far as I know, we're the only one that actually still exists under the same management and corporate name.
0: Yeah, I believe it.
2: And, uh, and it's sort of funny because back then people were saying, well, you know, you're a small company. How do we know you're going to be around? Well, <laughs> that's
1: what. Very good. Sometimes it's not the size that counts. <laughs> now, Dan, I remember you founded uh, Desilware. Uh, after seeing Visual Basic, you said you, you thought... This is going to revolutionize the way people program. Yeah, uh, I mean, you look at .NET the
2: same way. Do I look at .NET the same way? No. Um, .NET is a, it's it's more of an evolutionary uh, product. In, yeah. so, in some ways, you could say it's revolutionary, in the sense that really it's like programming to a new operating system. Yeah. So could you say that, well, here's a whole new operating system, that's revolutionary? Well, yeah, I suppose it is. Uh, is there anything spectacularly new from a, from a theoretical point of view in .NET? No, not really. Um, it does a lot of things better than I've seen before. You know, I think their, uh, their, their uh, JIT, their incremental compilation is really slick because it, because it does give you free native code. Uh, garbage collection, you know, people have done garbage collection before, but I think they're doing a really good job of the object tracking, the idea of managed code, and I think the, uh, the security, the way that's built into yeah. the framework, is very, very, very significant. Like
0: yeah, you know, the caching was pretty cool, too. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you, Dan. I think that uh, given the logical course of software development, we would have ended up with a .NET sooner or later. Um, you know, it's just applied theory plus work, really, but it doesn't really represent, you know, you you know, you think of your code and then you have a program, which is amazingly what it seemed like when Visual Basic 1.0 uh, came around. I,
2: when you went from C programming in Windows to VB one programming, I personally saw at least a measurable order of magnitude improvement in efficiency,
0: yeah.
2: which is... Something that is ultimately, I think, why VB became such a success, because even the most uh, bigoted C programmers have to look at this and say, I can make more money and write more code faster, mm-hmm. uh, even if it doesn't have all the bells and whistles and, and I have to work around some things. Uh, it was an, an 80% solution for, for 10% of the effort. Yeah. Uh, and .NET is not that. Uh, it, does, it does not represent that kind of a change from previous versions of VB. It does not represent that kind of change from, for C++ programmers moving from MFC or ATL.
0: I think it represents at least 100% if, uh, efficiency, though, of productivity gain.
2: Right, and, and you also have to consider what that really means. So let's say that you have 100% coding efficiency. No, let's go farther. Let's say .NET made your coding so efficient that it was, it was 100 times more efficient, the coding itself. Well, you know, if you actually look at the real cost of software, coding is actually a pretty small amount of the time that, that you're spending. You're spending a lot of your time in design. Well, I hope you're spending a lot of time in, in design. <laughs> no. And, and uh, also in, in support and maintenance and, and all of the documentation, all of the other things that go into to the life cycle of a piece of software. So, you know, that 100% improvement in efficiency is, is still, it's a pretty small amount, and it comes at a cost for your first .net, .NET project of a substantial learning curve. True. So, you know, what this means is that is that, you know, and, and this is nothing against .NET at all. It's just that it, it is not a, wow, drop everything and go to it. It, it really is a, a decision. The timing is one that has to be thought of in any yeah. enterprise.
0: It does certainly does represent um, a lot of getting over the hump of... Figuring out what they're doing, I think, for me anyway. Once I got over that, you know, and, and admittedly it was a pretty rapid area of time where I had to cram all that stuff and learn everything. But once you know, once you get over that hump, you know, and you realize you have that object model there, uh, you, you know, you really feel I really feel like there isn't anything I
1: can't do. Right? Yeah. Uh, especially I, I looked at it at first. Uh, just at syntax, and I thought, okay, I've got to learn any syntax Mm. for vb.net and for C-sharp. And really, that wasn't too bad. Agreed. I I got a hold of that very quickly. Now I'm humbled by the size of the framework and trying to figure out where do I find the right thing in the framework to get my job done. That's the real
2: trick. And you're absolutely right. And that is the challenge, because you know, if you think about it, and, and this this is really the heart of why it's a different experience from the transition to VV1, is VV1 accomplished its magic by providing this level of abstraction over right. Windows so that you didn't have to learn all of Windows. You didn't have to learn the huge Windows API, so you had a very rapid learning curve. Um, Visual C++ with, with MFC never accomplished that because MFC itself was a wrapper over Windows, but it itself was huge and had a lot to learn. Well, .NET and even VB.NET is, is much the same in that you have that – it's more of a wrapper than a level of abstraction. You, right. you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and it's a great wrapper. Yeah, it certainly is. But, but what's missing and, and the whole is sort of the, the VB equivalent, which is you know what, what I'd like to see and, – and I've actually told people from Microsoft that I would lo- love to see this, and, and I present this to a challenge to your listeners as well – I'm looking for the .NET language that provides that level of abstraction over the framework that VB1 did to the Win32 API.
0: see a lot of heads nodding in here, Dan. You seem to be striking nerve.
2: So, so if anyone wants to write that, you know, doesn't where will market it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're listening to .NET Rocks with Carl Franklin and Mark Dunn live from Microsoft offices in Waltham, Massachusetts interviewing Dan Appleman of Desaware, September eleventh, two 2002. You can only listen to .NET Rocks right here at www.franklins.net. Uh, you got any
1: questions for Dan? Okay, can I ask a question about reflection?
0: Yeah.
1: We're trying to get for reflection the members of control. Yeah. Do you have any reference of where I can go to
2: find out how to do that? Just, uh, this is a .NET control. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I show how to do some of that in my book. Uh, the obfuscator ebook actually shows you how to do that. Basically, once you have that object that you want to get the members for it, you use the uh, the get type method. So you get the type object for that, and then you just start calling the methods. You know, get members, get properties, and, uh, and just literally you can enumerate them or pull in a, a whole array of them and just look through them. It's actually it's actually really cool stuff.
1: Once you have a member, can you set its value?
2: Uh, yes. Once you have a once you have a reference to a member, and you get the type information for it, then you can use the uh, invoke method, and and you can literally invoke it. In fact, one of the interesting things is you can actually modify the values of private members this way, which is sort of a subtle thing that. Uh, back, back, back. Yes. Well, you know, it's, the reason you can do that is because that's how serialization works. Right.
1: Thanks. It looks like I'll have some fun. Mm-hmm. You, you had just... didn't. Hi.
0: You, you had just mentioned that uh, through reflection you were able to modify a, um, a private member.
2: Yes.
0: Um, is there any way to prevent that?
2: Not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks.
0: That was easy. Yeah, I guess so. Well, uh, Dan, I know that in your book, in your book, uh, Moving to VBNet, you uh, warn against some of the new, this is what I tell people, and I tell people that we lose DLL hell with .NET, but we get a few new hells. Uh, One of them in Visual Studio is what I like to call docking hell. Have you <laughs> out? Okay. Um,
2: I, my philosophy generally is to leave things where they are as yes. much as possible. Right.
0: I did find a great little tip, though, um, that if you double click on a window such as the properties window, it'll jump out. You can resize it, and then double click it again, it'll jump back. Cool. So, you know, that, that just saved you hours of uh, frustration, I'm sure. The real, the, real
2: the real interesting one I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how it works is, is uh, you know, they've announced Everett. Yes, and uh, we have to be careful what we say about Everett. It, right. Like, well, they've announced that it's in the it's in it? the roadmap that they published. What uh, is it again? They they published on MSDN a roadmap for the future of Visual Studio. Okay. And uh, and that's where they talk about Everett. And uh, and Everett, according to the roadmap, is actually going to having a, a new version, an updated version of the framework. Well, tell everybody what Everett is. Well, I don't know what Everett is. Oh. <laughs> Everett Everett is the next. The next thing they're doing, it's the, okay. the version of the framework that's going to ship with, uh, I, I think they call it a .NET Server, right? Yeah. Right. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but .NET Server is just what we would normally call XP Server. XP Server, right. Right, but, but in their compulsive need to apply the name .NET to right. everything, it became .NET Server. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Well, you know, I mean, even Bill Gates admitted that they went overboard on that. Yeah, I
0: know. <laughs> So uh, another hell that you warn against in your book, which is why I brought it up, is Inheritance Hell. So yeah. what can you tell us about that?
2: Well, you know, inheritance is, is a real interesting thing in that it's, it's very powerful and it's something that visual basic programmers have wanted for a long time. The problem is that many of the programmers who've asked for it, like with multithreading, didn't know exactly what they're asking for. <laughs> And my concern was basically to say, look, inheritance is great. The whole framework's built on it. And in fact, anytime you're building a framework of reusable code, you want to use inheritance. But the reality is most people do not spend a lot of time building frameworks of reusable code. We tend to be spend our time using frameworks that other people have created, such as the .NET libraries themselves. So while it's true that we use inheritance all the time, I'm concerned that people might have this rush to, oh, let's just go ahead and start creating inheritable objects. Uh, and that's not necessarily the best way to go. Because and what's not. worse is
0: putting them in separate DLLs.
2: Yes. I don't even want to think about that.
1: Right.
2: Uh, and, and it really, it takes, to do a, a inheritable object well, really takes some serious design thought, because you have to consider carefully... Not only the, the visibility of the members, which ones are public and private and so on, but which ones are overridable and what happens if people override them in certain ways. So it, it's something to be thought carefully of and not something to be done casually. Uh, plus there are many cases where what you really want is to implement an interface. Uh, and so it just takes a certain level of understanding before one just starts doing it. Hi Dan, this is Dan. Um, Hi. One of the things that I noticed when I first started into this was that Visual Basic was no longer basic. and Basic in the sense of basic the language or basic in the sense of simple? Simple. Okay. The right out of the box, the Visual Basic program, it just took off and went. Yes. In your book, you sort of kind of hinted that there might be a regression, so to speak, to a VB7, where everybody says .NET is VB7, but... Do you see a regression of a simpler language coming out for the basically the Visual Basic people that refuse to go to .NET? Good question. Right. Um, first of all, if, if there's any hint of such a thing in my book, then that hint is is not there. Okay. there. There's no hint intended that I that I know of something or 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 have heard of anything. Um, I, I do know, because I've been bending people's ears about this for some time, that, that certainly, you know, the developers at Microsoft are well aware that they have this learning curve issue. What they're gonna do about it's a really good question, uh, for which I don't have the answer. I don't know if they have the answer yet in terms of how they're gonna deal with it. I think the way they've been dealing with it so far is to try to put out more and more resources and information. Uh, the catch here is, and that's a great thing, the problem is that, that flooding people with more information is a tactic that has limited use when part of the problem is they're already overwhelmed with information. So, you know, the, the real the real problem is is how do you solve this problem? Uh, and I don't know how they're going to solve this problem. I don't know if the problem can be solved with visualbasic.net. But you can tell they're thinking about it because, again, if you look at this roadmap, and and they sort of fi- say how they're going to differentiate the languages in the future. The word that they use for Visual Basic is productivity. So, you know, if you're going to say this is our language of productivity, and everybody in the world has been yelling at them saying it's not as easy as VB6 was, it wasn't. It's not an out-of-the-box experience. Well, you got to figure somebody there understands this, and they're going to do something. I gotta, don't know what the answer is, though.
0: You got to admit, though, Dan, it's a little easier than C sharp, no?
1: Um, what about case sensitivity, I mean, mean, my god. (laughs) Did did they want that? Did the C
0: programmers want Case insensitivity, or else they wouldn't think it was a real language. Or
2: See, yeah, well, well, you know, here you're getting into psychology and and okay. pu- and, 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 pu- and bigotry and so on. Yeah. <laughs> you have you have tons and tons of people who are moving to C Sharp simply because it's got C in the name, and they don't have any rational reason for
1: it. And I, I had well, a student so. recently, a VB programmer, that told me, you know, I'm going to learn C Sharp, and I said, well, what's your compelling reason to do that? And He said, respect. Yes, and, and
2: that is, that is the, well, one of the things that I tell people is, people ask me which one to learn, is that a vb.net programmer should learn vb.net because it is, even now, more productive language. It's more productive because the environment with background compilation is more productive, and it's more productive because the event handling is good as compared to C Sharp, which is, you know, where did they come up with this?
0: All right. we got another question for you,
2: Dan. Well, I, d- I just wanted to finish this comment that, that I tell VB.net programmers, though, that they do need to learn C-sharp. And the reason they ne- need to learn C-sharp is because, sure enough, the day will come that they will reach a- have a client or employer who will be willing to pay them extra money to write the- it in C-sharp rather than db.net and that they therefore have a moral obligation to take that money. <laughs> uh,
0: very good. Good point. Very good. I, I tell people that VB programs, that they should at least know how to read C-sharp. Absolutely. I call C-sharp for VB program as a read-only language, <laughs> and C++ a write-only language. <laughs> anyway, here's another question for yeah. you. Right, well, first, uh, this is Andy. I've got uh, a couple questions. I've brought in my copy of Visual Basic 5, Programmer's Guide to the Win32 API.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It's copy too. That's and
0: I'd like you to autograph it.
1: <laughs> um, that, that's a little tough.
2: <laughs> I, I
0: realize that now. Uh, they said it was a live interview. Said, live interview, okay. Um, and getting back to your discussion of you know whether it's going to getting to VB.net, um, I think the, the real problem that I see is getting management to, to be willing to, to make the jump. And I don't see a whole lot of management interested in it because they don't really see a whole lot of productivity opportunities. Um, so I wonder if you had something to, to comment yes, on that yeah. and you know, how we might, might go about uh, convincing some of the people who have the write the checks.
2: This is, this is actually a subject that I cover in my Moving to .NET book. The first three chapters are actually have to do with strategies. They, they're really designed almost more for managers than programmers. Saying What is this thing? Why is it good? Why do we want to go there? Uh, and the fact of the matter is that, that there are lots of compelling reasons to go there because, uh, .NET lets you write more reliable code. It, it, it's code that in the lo- entire life cycle is going to be cheaper. You have, uh, better reuse, you have better deployment, uh, and you have better, better memory management. So there are lots of good reasons to do it. What there are not are compelling reasons to jump into it immediately. Uh, there's certainly no reason at all to port existing code. And that yeah. is one of the messages that, that I predicted back when I wrote the book that I think most of the responsible speakers and leaders in the community agree with, and even Microsoft agrees with, porting is stupid.
0: And aren't you, aren't you glad that they changed that array problem back to uh, you know uh, the way VB6 handled arrays so that we wouldn't have to worry about that when we ported all our code?
2: Well, the Migration Wizard handled that anyway. <laughs> you know, that sort was... That that was you know they had they had people whining about VB people whining running, about the wrong the, things.
0: You weren't one of the whiners, were you, Dan?
2: No, I was I was uh, the guy who basically stayed very quiet for the longest time, <laughs> and uh, and someone basically came out and said, so so what do you think? Yeah. And I responded on a news group and I said, you know, basically I resign my guru status. Uh, right. I'm calling into the corner to to learn this thing before I start commenting on it. That's
0: a good a smart thing to do we got another question for you. Mm -hmm. Hi, Dan. Um, I was actually wondering if you know uh, of different ways of calling web service functions asynchronously.
2: Calling them asynchronously, uh, I know only one way offhand, which is you just call it asynchronously using begin invoke and end invoke.
0: Right, there's an asynchronous model in .NET that applies to web
2: services. Right, it applies to any method call at all, so I assume it would work with web services. You know, be aware that that it's asynchronous from the perspective of your program, uh, it's not asynchronous from the perspective of the web service. In other words, it's going to hold that connection open until the web service returns the results. Right. Because the web service can't go and do a connect back into your into your client.
0: You know, um, uh, getting back to that question about people not wanting to port right away or not move to .NET right away, um, my brother works for a, a company that's entrenched in the Java mentality, and... Uh, unfortunately, they're not even interested in figuring out what .NET is. Not even to the point. You know, they don't. They don't want to port. They don't want to move. In other words, they don't want to jump ship, and they don't even want to know what's out there. So I sent an email saying, you know, I, I'll come in and do a free one-day overview for you, executive briefing, and just so you know what you're what you're giving up or, mm-hmm. or not going to do. And they said, no, we're not. We only have one component that's written in VB, and we're not going to do any more Visual Basics, so thank you very much, but we'll pass. They chose to avert their eyes. Yeah, exactly. Do you see that happening? Do do a lot of folks here see that happening? Yes. Yeah, heads are nodding.
2: Well, you know, if, if I was from Microsoft, then I would have a lot of things to say about that. But... Here's the thing: We, we live in a, a world as, as programmers, where there are floods and floods of technology coming at us, not mm. just from Microsoft, but from all sides. Right. And of course, because these are all you know commercial platforms sponsored by companies, both Microsoft or Sun or IBM. Each one is, of course, the ultimate thing that you have to deploy. That's the best thing in the world that you need to do right now. Right. And you know, if if we really spent the time to understand each of these platforms and do the trade-offs and and decide what's best, every time something new came along, we'd never get any work done. That's true. So every developer has to really, in a sense, put on some strong filters and say, you know, where where do I even need to be looking? Where do I need to be spending my time that's economically best? Now, I don't know the Java platform, so I, I really... You know, I can't comment on that at all. I'm, I'm a Microsoft guy. I work. I work with .NET. Um, can I look and just say, based on what little I know, that .NET is so much greater than the Java platform that everyone should drop Java and switch to .NET right away? Is is that a, an economic statement that I can make? Well, no? you certainly
0: can make it. But don't you think somebody at don't you think if you ran a technology company, you would hire one guy whose job it is to put the blinders on? and go investigate all these technologies at a pretty deep level and make that this guy's job or this lady's job, you know, a research department to go and find out if it's going to save us time to completely start over. You know, is, are we going to save more time by starting over or taking our schemas or whatever, our database, and moving with another technology? You know, is our time to market going to be faster are we going to have a better product? So. No, I think I think I have the luxury of time, but a lot of companies that are uh, burning dollars don't. Oh you know.
2: a lot right. It, it it becomes a very complex question and it's one that really does depend on the individual company to, to figure out what's best for them. Yeah. So uh, I think it I think it's important to be aware of it, but you know, I'm a good example of the other way. I'm not aware of the Java platform. Right. You know. And that is a purely economic decision. It's just not worth my time to be aware of it. That's true. So I'm sure there are people on the other side that, that have that same situation. You wish but there were more good. neutral
0: people out there, more uh, technology Switzerland's, if it were. You know? <laughs> Although they just joined the UN, so
2: they don't, <laughs> they don't Um anybody? They're hard to find. They're hard to find, I would expect. Because it, it takes a lot, of, a lot of effort to really become an expert in such a broad range of technology.
1: And when times are tied to, R&D budgets seem to be the first thing that go. R&D budgets, they're not necessarily the wor-
2: first thing to go, but they certainly start looking harder, and, and they want it more focused towards return. Right. So you have less time to waste money and, and explore, and you need, you spend more more effort you know, trying to get productive and get products and, and get solutions that work. All right, work. We, we got another
0: question for you, Dan. Mm -hmm. Hi Dan, this is Ravi, and uh, actually we are planning to move to .NET platform, and uh, we are thinking whether we should go in the VB.NET route or C-sharp, and uh, is there any reason why we should choose
1: one or the other, are there any limitation you see? What are your
2: programmers programming in now? VB. They're programming in VB? Yeah. Then you will probably get more productivity moving them to VB.NET. Okay. Because it is an easier transition uh, from VB BB to .NET, It is a somewhat more productive environment uh, because of it's background compilations. They're used to the case insensitivity. The event handling is better and more familiar. And, you know, presumably, you know, your only real reason to want to go to C-sharp there is if, you know, they have... Uh, this lack of confidence that they're not real programmers and they say, "No, we have to learn C-sharp because then people will
1: respect us. Okay, so is there any limitation in VB.net that you cannot do, which you can do only with C-sharp? None that
2: I know of, and, you know, if there are, you can go ahead and write a C-sharp assembly to do
1: it for you. You can write something in C-sharp called unsafe code, but I'm not sure that I really want to do that. Uh, Actually... What you can do in c is what's
2: called unsafe, code. first of all, you don't want to do that, and second of all, all of the, the kind of memory manipulation you're talking about, you can do using the framework from vb.net, using the Marshall class. So it's a little easier in C-Sharp because it's built into the language, but you can still do it.
1: So I could still do the same thing with vb.net if I wanted to? Yes. Yeah.
0: And you're listening to Dan Appleman, interviewed by Carl Franklin and Mark Dunn. This is .NET Rocks, recorded live at Microsoft offices in Waltham, Massachusetts, September 11, 2002, at the meeting of the .NET User Group of Greater Boston. Coming right up, Chris Pells, the president of the .NET Users Group of Greater Boston, asked Dan a question. And you can only hear .NET Rocks right here at www.franklins.net.
1: Um, I have a question in, in relation to if you have a lot of existing code, vb 6 code uh, in projects in production, what's uh, your two cents on uh, the upgrade versus rewrite and new capabilities issue? Okay, first of all, if you have code that works,
2: then every penny that you spend rewriting into .NET is, except for exceptional situations, it's money you're throwing away. Right? Because your code works. So, what you do to go to .NET is you use interrupt. Right? You take your, you, you install the .NET framework and you say, okay, here's a new feature I want to add that I can componentize. I can put it in an object somewhere. So, instead of making it a BB6 object, I'm going to make it a .NET object and I'm going to talk to it through interrupt, which works very well. Right? Especially for, for, for DLL assemblies. And that's how you do the migration, bit by bit. You know, if there are specific kinds of objects, you look, you say, say you have an object that, uh, for some reason, you know, you, you want to redesign it, maybe to take advantage of threading or free threading or, or something like that. You pick that object out and you move it to .NET, very selectively. But, but wholesale porting, I've, I've spoken to some people who've actually done research. I don't have the numbers with me, but, uh, they have a 100,000 line VB6 project, and they actually ran it through the wizard and they estimated the time it would take to finish the migration and test it and all that. And it, it was years, it was huge.
1: Wow.
2: So, so porting is, general, generally speaking, porting is just not the way to go.
1: Yeah, that made me think of something. Uh, early on, I wrote a lot of VB3 um, programs, especially that, that made use of the API. So I was making a lot of API calls wrapped in Visual Basic. And one thing I noticed, uh, at one point I had a mapping system that got converted later into C++. And the performance gains in C++ were not that significant uh, because really VB was just wrapping around the API. Uh, Do you really see compelling reasons in in .NET to do the same thing? If I really want to get the most out of performance... Well, well,
2: let's back up for a moment. You all know that for a given Windows application, a VB6 Windows application will generally run faster than the .NET equivalent. Yes? No? A VB6
0: application? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you that. You know, the framework's the framework, the framework's a framework right? It's, it's, it's wrappers over Windows. It's, uh, you know, it's a nice framework and so on, but... but don't assume that just because it's .NET, it's, it's necessarily faster than VB6. I mean, VB6 is, is generating good native code that's going straight to the Windows API. It's true. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, porting to get performance, where, where you get your performance, is from architectural reasons. So, for example, uh, let's say you have a VB6 DLL called from ASP, and you're storing it in the session object, so you get this the, the COM threading problem. Right. right, because it, it locks a session down to a, a single apartment. Well, you know, in .NET, you can write your component so it's free-threaded, so it doesn't suffer from that problem. So you get a benefit there. But you know, just saying we're going to .NET, and we're getting improved performance is just not true. Okay.
1: Right. Uh, do you want to take a question from email, Dan? Sure. All right. This comes from Linda Farrington uh, at Energy Guide. She says, hi, Dan, here's my .NET question. With the introduction of .NET, I'm now confused as to whether my middle tier components should use com plus or not. We have some middle tier objects that may just be doing selects from the database, and therefore not be using transactions heavily. However, is it still a benefit to put these objects into com plus? Uh, for object pooling, if com plus is using cominterop under the covers, should we avoid it altogether? Okay, I can, I
2: can partly answer that. I can't, I can't give you a complete answer because I don't know enough about the project. ComPlus, which is sort of an updated name for what was originally Microsoft Transaction Server, uh, plus a few other things, in, in the context of what we're concerned about here does three things for you. One is, it lets you remote a DLL. It hosts the DLL, uh, in a process. Second, it does transactioning, and third, it lets you do object pooling. So um, moving to in the .NET world, uh, hosting a DLL is hosted by the runtime. So you're not getting anything by having Complus host your DLL. You can host it by the runtime using .NET remoting. Uh, transactioning is what Complus is really good for. So if you have a, a lot of transaction going on, you know, wow, that's good. It's worth the price of going through interrupts. Object pooling, the real question there is you use object pooling when the price for, for building up and tearing down a component is less than the cost of, of keeping the component around, right? So, you know, you don't want to keep the components around. You want to share them. Uh, you don't want to keep building them and tearing them. Actually, the cost for building and tearing is not the same as, as maintaining the state, right, because you have the state stored somewhere
1: else. It's right. so a small it. component that was not used that often, it probably wouldn't be a good candidate for object billing. Exactly. Or if it's one that to set it up to
2: perform the task is so expensive, it's more expensive than tearing it down and creating a new one. So that and that's a very application-dependent question that I can't answer. The interop I think is sort of the red herring here. Uh, obviously Com Plus and, and all of transactioning and enterprise services in Com Plus when you deal with the, the the management namespaces in .NET, you're just wrapping that, right? They have not yet migrated all that stuff to native .NET. But Interop's reasonably efficient, and I don't think the cost of going through Interop is going to be the decisive factor here.
0: I heard that it was something like 50 to 60 instructions per call within Interop. So if you think, you know... Maybe, maybe in a sitting in a tight loop, going through a million records in a 4 next loop, you might shave off a few seconds uh, if you're, you know, if you have a million records, let's say. But you know, is it going to make your form load any faster? You know, really, is it going to make a noticeable difference mm-hmm. while making one or one or two or even a hundred calls?
2: Right. I mean, fifty fifty assembly instructions run awfully quickly on today's machine.
0: They certainly do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How does your SpyWorks masterpiece fit into .NET? Because SpyWorks is really, um, i consider it a work of art. I mean, it's a, just a masterful hacker's uh, tool chest for things that you couldn't do for years and years and years. What's new in SpyWorks for .NET?
2: Uh, well, it, it's more the question is what's old. Uh, <laughs> basically, we went through the pack and, uh, package and we said, so what can you not do in .NET, whether VB.NET or C Sharp? And the answer is, well, you know, global subclassing and hooks, and system hooks, uh, you can't do those in c or db.net. Uh, and even if you can find a kludgy way to do it, do you really want to map the entire .net runtime into every process in your system? No, you don't. So, uh, so that, that's doing very well. Uh, you cannot do true API exports from db.net or c right, because you just can't do that. So we have a way to do that as well. Uh, the next version will have, and those are already shipping for .NET uh, control panel applets. Uh, we're going to have that for .NET. That's actually going to be in the next version of the uh, uh, Windows Services Toolkit, which
1: we're also migrating to .NET.
0: So you can't make control panel applets with the framework.
2: Nope. Wow.
1: I didn't know that.
0: I didn't nope. know that either. You
2: can't. You can't access OLE structured storage from the framework. That's why we uh, still we have storage tools now for .NET.
0: Um, yeah, one thing that you mentioned about do you really want to load every, every library of the framework into the process, it brings up an issue that a lot of people don't think about, which is memory. And um, anytime you make a reference to an assembly in the .NET framework, you're loading that assembly into the process of your application. So if you just take the standard VB Windows application template, And you do a hello world on it, and then take a look at the task manager sometime up the, uh, the process list, in the task manager. It's like you know in debug mode anyway. It's like, what, 13 megabytes?
2: Yeah, it's a pretty good size footprint.
0: So, I did some uh, some tests and tried taking the debug stuff out. That cleaned it up a little bit. Then I took out all the references that I wasn't using, like system data, system XML. And um did a hello world at six six megabytes, and so you know I see a lot of people like looking around and squinting their eyes and well, that's not good, but if you think about it for a minute and, and I'm just going to play the other side of the coin here, consider the alternative the alternative is to granularize the framework into hundreds of thousands of dlls, and every time you wanted to make a call, you'd have to make a reference to that dll that had that particular call in it, or even maybe not hundreds of thousands but to break it up into so many little uh, assemblies that you'd spend a lot of time chasing those down.
2: Right. And, and also, you know, remember that we have a lot more memory on our systems than we did. That was my next to, point. Yeah, when we were dealing with BB1. Now, the issue with Spyworks is not the size of the runtime itself in the fact that when you do a system hook, you map that component into every single process in the system, some of which were not designed to, to work with the runtime right? That's what hooks do. So you don't want to do that, right? And with spyworks for .NET, you only map in the, you know, 90 or 100K into those processes. Ah. So, you know, even even if you could do a system hook using db.NET or C-sharp, and I don't know any, of any way to do that, you wouldn't want to.
0: Yeah. Okay, one more question.
2: Actually, let me, I want to extend the invitation. Okay. One of the things I've been working on recently is something that a lot of DB6 programmers are not familiar with, which are state machines. I think state machines are just about one of the most exciting things uh, and, more important, essential things, especially if you're going to do multi-threading and background operations or asynchronous operations. And sooner or later, you're going to want to do those because that's where scalability and performance really comes in. So I'd like to invite people to DESAware's website, look uh, under a product called State Coder, and this is a product for doing state machines uh, under .NET, and there are also some really good tutorial introductory articles that talk about state machines, what they're used for, whether you use this product or just do it on your own.
0: Can you give us a a two-cent overview of what a state machine is?
2: Okay. Everybody there knows, I presume, that you're supposed to do object-oriented programming, Right. Okay. Show of hands. People know object-oriented programming is good. good. Why is object-oriented programming good? It's not reusability a is the
1: great promise, right? I'm sorry? I said reusability is the great promise of object-oriented development. Right? Efficiency. Efficiency. Where does that efficiency come from, though?
0: From referential, uh, having references to data instead of making copies when we want to modify
2: it. And encapsulation. Okay. Right? I mean, the real thing, the real reason we do object-oriented programming is because it lets us, instead of having a million functions with random names and data all over the place, it lets us encapsulate data with its methods together, and it lets us thus reduce the overall complexity of our application. Right? Okay. Because managing complexity is what it's all about. Right. A state machine does the same thing for events. In other words, if you have an application or component, it keeps getting messages or events, whether those are are mouse clicks or client requests or end results of an asynchronous operation or a system shutdown. All sorts of things can happen. The input comes in and it doesn't necessarily come in in sequence. Designing a program or a component so it can handle anything at any time is roughly the equivalent of designing a program with a whole flood of messages and data all laid out in a line. Building a state machine is the analogous situation where you take all those events and you instead change your program so that it's divided into states. And at any given state, you define what are the permitted inputs and how to respond to them. And anything that is not a permitted input can be dealt with as an error condition. So it's a way of managing complexity And and the truth is, we all write state machines all the time.
0: Protocols, for example.
2: Protocols are a good example, but you know what? If you click on a button and then disable the button so that people can't click on it again, you just built a state machine. Because what you've done is you've put your application in a state where that button is disabled, where it can no longer receive input.
0: Very good, very good. Uh, Any last thoughts before we say goodbye, Dan?
2: Uh, it's been a real pleasure being with you today, uh, this evening, I guess, this evening over there. And I wish everyone all the best of luck.
0: Dan, I can say wholeheartedly from this group here, thank you very much for accepting this invitation. And uh, to the listening audience, they thank you. And please continue to do the good work that you do for the community.
2: Well, thank you very much. Right, Dan.